something alive even if it's not yours though. Are you allowed to do that? Mm-hmm. Did you yeah. get permission? Because it's definitely so, the composer is definitely not dead. So for live performance you have to get a license from ASCAP and BMI and like yeah. the small performance rights licensing organizations. But then that covers that whole catalog. It doesn't matter oh, if it's so yours. If yeah. you got a license, well and a lot of the time I think it's the venue's responsibility, not the artist's responsibility. I don't fully understand how this works. Or for religious Copyright music, is like very difficult. So Any kind of music. For, um, for, here, t- talk into the mic, talk into the mic. For worship music? <laughs> yeah, so for worship music, this is interesting, actually. I think this is fascinating stuff. So I think it's the 1979 copyright law that's, like, the most relevant to this, like, there is a religious services exemption, but it's a religious services exemption. But that wasn't a service. Exactly. Here, put the, you know, put the mic up there. But that wasn't a service. Yeah, exactly. Right. So this is a place where a lot of churches run afoul of the law. Like, so in Abiding Presence Lutheran Church, Burke, Virginia, we can perform, quote unquote, that's public performance for the purposes of the law, any song in worship, and we don't have to like get a license from ASCAP and BMI and whatever, like the small performance rights licensing organizations. But if we're having a concert that's not in the context of a religious service, technically that's then unlicensed performance. And does that concert have to be something where you have to have a paid gate or something like that? Nope. No, no just a free concert? You, you would have yeah. to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So like Think of like there's lots of there's lots of instances. It's this it's, people make this argument a lot with copyright law. Like with um, they think just because you do something or give something away for free, like therefore it's not bad. But think of like the argument with uh, or and not bad. Bad morality isn't the question here. It's law legality, right? So like the whole idea of like oh I bought this thing, I should be able to give it away because I'm not making any money from it it's like yeah but then like if everybody did that like there's a reason why the law is against that right so like let's say I bought this piece of sheet music I can't just like make a copy of it for you necessarily or the the bigger question in the earlier part of the 21st century is like mp3 distributions like well I bought the cd don't I therefore get to like rip an mp3 of it and I think what the law settled on is like yeah you can but you can just rip the one for your own use you don't get to just give it to people so my question is are there sort of guardrails around usage ah are there sort of certain parameters around usage when it comes to sort of these you know for live performance Mm -hmm. go ahead Bri oh I was going to say, but then it depends. Oh, I was going to go into the educational ap- aspect with live performance because educational is way different from religious. Yeah. And Fair even use. copyright lawyers don't understand copyright law. So. No, they really don't. It's a super convoluted set of well, laws and court precedents. Well, then education is difficult, too. 
because with performances and education, by law, you should purchase it and you should purchase also the rights to perform it. You mean so, like if you do a performance in a concert or even correct. outside of that? Correct. So performance in a concert. So for example, um, great public... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> this pizza is <coughs> delicious. I want you to hear the crust here, all right? So, for example, like the publisher Music K8, if you subscribe to their publishing magazine, you have the rights to perform anything in that magazine because you bought it, right? But okay. you can't charge to get into that concert. Okay. But you can perform it because you bought it. Now, legally, you're not allowed to make your kids word sheets. Unless you copy uh, yeah. the page that came in the Music K-8 book. So if it's any other song, so let's say it's Jingle Bells, and whoever owns the publishing, well, I don't know if Jingle Bells is copyrighted or not by this point, or if it's public domain, but let's say Jingle Bells is copyrighted. Legally, I would not be allowed to make my kids a word sheet for Jingle Bells unless I got That's permission true. to do it. That's true. So um, performances and education are difficult because a lot of times you can do it as long as you're not charging an admission. Um, but at the same time, it's difficult. So like if Dave wants to make an arrangement of some crazy John Mackey piece, but he wants to do it all with voices instead of instruments, he can do that. But whoever the publisher is, he has to contact the publisher, he has to get permission, and then a lot of times those publishers will say, okay, yes, you can do this, but you need to pay me $1 for every part that you make, or $2 for every part that you make. Right. And then you might need to pay to arrange it as well. That's so. okay, so that's amazing. So as a pleb, I'm like a layperson, <laughs> like non-musical person. So my question is, who's enforcing this? Is there like a copyright police specifically? That is for such music? a good question Excellent because question. audience uh. showing up, you know, with their clipboard, checking things off. Because sometimes it's citations. Sometimes it's a it? yeah. Sometimes That's it's a matter of can you get away with it? I mean, I almost think back to the old one of the oldest examples of plagiarism or just in music, which is little Johann Sebastian Bach. With his brother's music, he would he he would go at night and steal his brother's music and would copy it on Moonlight and would just keep doing that like night after night after night after night. And then wait wait wait, Brianna, say that again. That was genius. Hashtag Moonlight Sonata. (laughs) And then one day he got caught doing it by his brother, and his brother you know beat him up and stole his music. But just imagine, (laughs) but just imagine if like. You had a billion little box like taking your music and like copying it and returning and it back, like, and it'd be like, it's like, well, who's gonna know? Who's gonna know who stole it or not? It's it's one of those weird things, and I guess that's even as a musician, I still wonder, you know, how do you deal with that? Because you only hear about the big cases of copyright, especially like right, sampled right. music of, you know, like Pharrell Williams get in trouble for. Sampling Marvin Gaye and all of these things. You don't hear it with these lower-time producers that steal music. But the Pharrell Williams example is that was not about the sample. That was about copying ideas. And that, that was a problematic one. I actually teach about this one in my ear training class because... Well, that's a good question, too. What is the difference yeah. between plagiarism or like and like copying the idea so all the way? I'm not an expert in this, but Me to neither. partially answer your question, Jordan... Um, my understanding is there's different kinds of 
Let me, let me, let me, let me, actually, rather than try to describe them in a dry way, let me give a concrete example. That'll, Super. I think, be more interesting. Let's go for it. So, um, why don't you name, name a piece of music that you think a lot of people know that was written in the last, like, 75 years? <laughs> this is really embarrassing, but the first one that came to mind is Hey Ya by Outkast. Okay, no, 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 that's actually a good example. I think, and actually, I think there may even be some copyright stuff yeah, related like, to that. Don't, don't judge me. Is that a me soul song? Hey Ya. It might be pentatonic mostly. It's a good song. Isn't that the one that's like, oh, how does the verse to that go? Can you can you sing a little bit of it? Honestly, I da, 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 oh man. This all, right, all right, all right, all yeah, right, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Picture, yeah. Sh- sh- shake it, right? I don't know. Am I shake remembering it, that? Shake it like a Polaroid picture. CJ, you got it. Come on, now take it. This is a great song. Okay, so. Our you apology. Put me on the spot as like the non-music person. No, no, no. Hey, that's a good example. All right, so. Do a podcast. They said it'll be fun. They said. A podcast. The podcast. Podcasts are always fun. Indeed, they are. <laughs> Let's keep it going. All right, so hey, ya. <laughs> um, is a piece of music that was written by multiple people. So first of all, the copyright is probably owned, quote unquote, by. Uh, by Outcast. Right. Is the mic is working? Is it owned by the artist or is it owned by like the producers or the studio? How, what, what so that's a those? great question. It depends. So the huh, um, well, there's multiple hey. copyrights. So, okay. so let's just take let's just take the idea of the song Hey Ya. Okay. Now this is probably a piece of music that first existed not just as like finished recording but it probably wasn't all written down in music notation right all right i mean do you think they like sat down and wrote like eight notes and quarter notes and stuff uh in the age of auto-tune i literally have no idea so (laughs) okay (laughs) so i doubt it i mean i think it was probably more created like napkins at a bar like i don't know well so perhaps the lyrics were yeah i would i would guess and then i would guess that the (laughs) the beat quote unquote or the um you know, the instrumental tracks were probably created, uh, you know, using various electronic devices, you know, maybe samplers, maybe um, turntables, you know, and probably in some kind of a recording studio type setting, I'm guessing. Or GarageBand? Not at the time, but yeah, maybe nowadays. Na- right. Nowadays... That's it really made the story, but... Oh, I know, right? No, I think that was pre-GarageBand, if I'm not mistaken. Does there, when did Aya come out? 2000s? Oh, maybe. Okay, so it could have been an early garage band. I doubt it. Anyway, so the point is, so there's this music composition. It was probably written by multiple people. And so I would guess, I'm not sure, that the songwriting credit, the credit for the musical composition part of it, goes to multiple people who probably split it up according to some kind of a contract that they have with each other. And it could be, it could be some of the producers, could be some of the people in the band who might be one and the same. So that's, so that the musical composition, quote unquote, even if it's not written down in notes and rhythms like in the way we think of Beethoven, that is a piece of intellectual property. And that's usually owned, a normal contract would be 50-50 between the, uh, the composers, creators, songwriters, whatever, and the publishing company. So if I want to create an arrangement of Hey Ya for Brianna's elementary school choir that she's going to start. Can we change it to Hey 
Dave. Hey, Dave. We could. We could. But we um, need to get permission. We need to get permission to do that, though. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so if I wanted to create an arrangement and sell that arangement, or actually, even I think just the act of creating an arrangement, like, I would need technically to get permission. And that's one of the places why publishers exist. Like, even if they're not publishing, quote unquote, like sheet music to Hey Y'all, like the original sheet music, because it might not exist. There's still the idea of an original composition. There's a publisher that owns that. Like, if you look at the fine print in a lot of record, you know, liner notes or whatever. So, and then that publisher would give me permission to do that. But then there's a whole separate set of intellectual properties, separate from the composition, that is the, the master recording. And the master recording is like the original outcast record version of Hey Ya. And if I want to do something with that, like if I want to sample that for my composition, I was just reading about this. Like, let's say that I'm a, a hip hop producer and I'm, you know, I want to use a little bit of that, you know, opening of the chorus, like in a sample. And I want to put that. Then I need to get permission from the publisher who will like give me permission to use the composition. But I also need to get permission from whoever holds the rights to the master recording which depending on the terms of their record contract, it could be the artist, it's usually the um, record company that's changing now. A lot of the time it's kind of mutually artist and record company. But you don't need to ask permission by the song creator? Like well, the last example? I or? do need to ask permission by whoever owns the rights to the composition, but usually the publisher is going to be the gatekeeper of those permissions. Okay, of everything, of all those things you listed. Yeah, typically, okay. once it gets No, actually, the publisher is just the gatekeeper on the composition part of it. Whoever owns the right of the master recording... Uh, could be the record company. Could be the record company, uh, could be the artist, could be the publisher. It could be a combination uh, and, of all of them. And usually, once it get, gets published, not all of the time... But a lot of times artists work on royalty deals then with the publisher. So yeah. an artist might not even own the rights to their own song that they wrote. This but was a big thing with they some... could be on a royalty deal through the publisher. So that's why so you so that's why I yes to monetize. Sorta. So that's why I can't just write a letter to Outcast and say, Hey, can I use your music? Because Outcast might not own it. Exactly. So this is pretty much why it takes forever to wait for your favorite artist's album to drop. <laughs> this is an issue in some places. If you look at like a recent, I was hearing if you look at a recent Beyonce album, there's like a huge list of clearances and rights that they've gotten. And then it gets worse, like, or not worse, but more complicated. This is all in theory to protect the rights of um, content creators, which I think is good. The problem is a lot of the time it ends up benefiting more like the people with the best lawyers who are like the, you know, big publishers, big record companies and stuff. But if I want to use that um, recording Hey Ya in my, like, in my movie or my TV commercial, I need to get a synchronization license to do that, to use the master recording. If I want to use it, if I want to re... If I want to make copies of it, like I want to put it on a CD and give it to all my friends, or if I want to like put it on a compilation or whatever, I have to get a mechanical license to do that. Definitely didn't do that when I would exchange mixtapes. Oh, no, Definitely didn't. right, yeah. You also typically need a mechanical license if you're going to turn it into a marching band arrangement. Just A mechanical license? Yeah, you need everything. Why that? Oh, for like Color Guard or something like that? When you're Interesting. just playing against it? I, 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 I don't know. A, I took a mandatory copyright class, and that was uh, something that they told us. Interesting. There's a lot of copyrights that you need to get, a lot of licenses. And then... So that's one of the reasons why like ASCAP and BMI and those companies exist for small performance rights is because like, so let's say that this, the restaurant we're sitting in right now, Pizzeria Paradiso, 
they want to be a venue and have bands come and play and do open mic nights and all that kind of stuff, they're going to get a, a, a performing... See, so you were asking about the copyright police. They're going to get a license from ASCAP, from BMI, from the major performance rights licensing organizations, PROs, so that they can do that and just everything in those catalogs is covered. Because between ASCAP, BMI, and I think CSAC is the smaller one, like that covers basically everybody in the United States. You wonder why a lot of these bars and everything just have rock cover bands? Yeah. Or if it's just like, why do they just play Aerosmith? Why do they just play, I don't know who else, ACDC? It's like, oh, right, because... At least that's what I'm assuming. Like now, I'm thinking about it. It makes more sense that a bar would have a license that would cover right, a broader, yeah, yeah, yeah. so they can do that. Genre. And then, okay. so it's not like you know Joe's Garage Band is going to come like with oh, we have a remote performance license in order to be able to perform the catalog or whatever. No, they just get these blanket licenses, and then those companies, ASCAP, BMI, distribute royalties to artists. So like, and one of the good things about those companies, theoretically, if they're working right, is the fact that like. Um, Rihanna or Cardi B or somebody is taking in gazillions from um, from the broadcast licenses, from radio stations and all that, from you know mechanical licenses, from records. Now, from would um, like talking about that, that bar? That it's the small guy. So, for that bar example, for guy. instance, if like uh, that bar had uh, Aerosmith cover band, would the bar have to? list out that okay we had the Aerosmith cover band come in and cover that song uh, and that's a great question yeah I, I well, guess I, I think the way that works is it's not like everybody reports everything but sometimes you have to report stuff so like a radio station will have like playlists that they like send off to ask Kevin I remember doing that when I was in yeah. school so I think like I, I'm not sure if this is the way it works the way it works in churches churches are a whole other thing because even though you can perform stuff without no getting idea. a license I can't make song sheets like Brianna was saying earlier without getting a license I could perform uh, a piece of music that's still under copyright like you know I, I don't know How Great Is Our God or something like that Chris, I think it's by Chris Tomlin but I can't make duplicates of the words to give to the congregation or put the words up on the screen or make duplicates of the sheet music without getting licenses to do that or buying copies to do that but there has to be so much in the public domain, though. Oh, at least a lot, in a yeah. lot of worship. Well, well, then, what are the what are the limitations, right? Like when those expire? Because I, I think usually it depends on what country you're in. <laughs> I, I can um, elaborate a little bit on this. Yeah, so do. It's again, it's different depending on what country you're in, um, but also it's different depending on what you're writing and how you wrote it and what kind of music you did. So, for example, typical copyright licenses are until the death of the composer plus 75 years. However, if a composer is still alive, it might be something like 100 years. But if the composer is not alive, then it's not. And then, well, what happens when something does become public domain? Because Hal Leonard's still publishing Bach chorales, but Bach's long gone. So then that's different. So the actual Bach chorale, so say you do something Bach, because you mentioned Bach earlier, is public domain. So if right. you find an original manuscript of it or a scan of a manuscript or you just want to perform it, you will have no problem performing it. However, if the, say, Hal Leonard arrangement of that Bach chorale is the most commonly performed one, and that's the one that you perform, yeah. it does not matter that Bach's music is public domain. 
you need to get the license from Hal Leonard because Hal Leonard owns the arrangement. The work and maybe an editor, like even just an edition, that's its yes. own piece of intellectual property. That, yes. that I wanted to ask to you about, like, what about translations? Ugh. Is that something that... Um, if, yeah, a translation that could be under copyright even if, yeah. even if the original work is in the public domain. So we did this Schubert piece, Shepherd on the Rock, uh, oh, yeah. and the soprano doesn't sing in English. Does she sing in German? Yes. Yeah. Um, most people, myself included in America, don't speak German. So I had included an English translation on my program notes. I casually did not get the license for it, but we're not going to say my last name on this podcast. Um, <laughs> um, however, again, it goes to that was an educational concert. I didn't monetize it. It was given for an educational purpose as part of my education. I didn't publish it. I gave credit to the composer. I gave credit to whoever translated it because it was not me. So I did include all of that stuff. However, again, who's going to check on that at a college kid's recital? There have been high-profile like um, lawsuits about violations of copyright, like even live performance stuff like that. Just most of it doesn't filter down. But I think of like in the early days of MP3 distribution when there were like pretty big lawsuits brought against people who like like some kid who emailed his friends like a Metallica MP3 or something like that. Like, this happened for real a few years ago. It's crazy. But then copyright gets really fishy too because... Oh, totally. There's this um, other part of copyright law that I learned on the mandatory seminar I had to sit through last year that if somebody sues you for a copyright issue and you are unaware of what the problem was, then they can only sue you up to $30,000. Really? However, if you have taken training or you have read any kind of book and you are away and you are aware of this copyright, they can fine you up to $100,000. So it's a vast difference. So like for right now, I just educated you that it's composer's death plus 75 years. So if you play something now outside of copyright because you know about it, technically you can get fined up to $100,000. Ooh, I better be careful then. So don't play Bach unless you buy the rights. <laughs> well, you can play Bach. Well, you can play. Buy Bach. Just oh, unlearn what you just learned right now. Yeah. Baby got Bach. But then like, uh, then streaming gets into a whole nother deal because... Like that's why we Is went. We went to this concert. Do you need a broadcast right. license? Now you do, but it's so, a little murky sometimes. We went to this concert last night, and I bought CDs because I feel like if you buy a hard copy of CD, that's the most direct way to support the artist. Because all at of those, the concert, yeah, because especially. all at the concert, right? Because then, say you bought it on Amazon, Amazon doesn't take a cut if you buy it at the concert eBay doesn't take a cut if you buy it at the concert. So all of that money will go directly to the artist and whoever the artist publishers are. And that was now, Taylor Swift's whole thing, right? With like her and Spotify. Yes. Now Spotify, um, I did have a friend who put something on Spotify once. We went to college with him and he got like a fraction of a penny for every time his song was played. Now for you and me, Spotify, unless you pay for premium, it's a free service. So I am not paying that artist anything to listen to their music. Nothing. That artist gets their money from premium users and from ads. That's the only way they get the money. 
because I don't pay for it. So that's why when I go to concerts, if I like the band, I like to buy something there because then I feel good about supporting the artist, even if it is just to make me feel good. So, so kick it old school. Buy CDs. That or is the best way to support them. I got two for $15. It was pretty incredible. Ooh. So you only kind of supported the artist. Well, that's the price that they were marketing <laughs> it for. Maybe it's cheaper to make CDs now. Do most cars support CDs anymore? This is an issue, isn't it? I mean, right. Mac MacBooks, you don't have CD players anymore. Nope. But I bought an external USB super drive. Because Plugging I'm a nerd. Well, also, <laughs> yeah. I don't want, like, a thousand kids' folk songs in my iTunes library, so... I was actually, um, my boyfriend and I were comparing songs the other day with most plays. His most played is from Queens of the Stone Age. The most played song in my iTunes library was the kids' arrangement of the Star Spangled Banner. So Probably better than mine, because mine's probably Hey Ya, like, secretly. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, Outcasts are pretty cool. You guys, you guys are cool. I was just looking for on the on the Google machine. There's this. Somebody said, "Oh, CJ, you said the thing about uh, tapes earlier, like making a mixtape and like not getting a license." There was actually a settlement. Even cooler. I know. There was a settlement reached by the recording industry, like multiple different, like probably it was probably the RIA, Recording Industry Association of America, with like with the government or with I forget who they reached the settlement with anyway I think it was back in the 80s it was basically like they, were, they, they put a small levy a small fee essentially that got attached to the sale of blank cassette tapes to offset that and then that went back to recording companies who then theoretically you know distributed to artists as part of their royalties but like that still exists now and apparently that's an I was reading that's an issue now because like Hardly anybody buys blank cassette tapes anymore. So it was it was like this little bit of money that was supposed to come back and cover. It's like, well, we know people like recording stuff off the radio, so rather than like try to prosecute everybody for that, we're just going to be like, eh, we'll make it a little, like, cost a tiny bit more to buy a blank cassette. And you figure they almost do the same with the streaming stuff, right? Where, I mean, if, if you actually paid the artist good money, every single artist good money, then Spotify would be broke. Yeah. By, you know like three days like into their business so that's it, part of what taylor swift was protesting she was like this is way too little to get paid for these kind of things and she i mean good for her you know but then you get things like google play where they have a google play subscription and that includes youtube red for like eight dollars a month and that's also another streaming service but i believe you can download from there can you download from spotify you cannot even if you're a premium playlist, though, can you download, you can download playlists? playlists? But, but you, you can't you make don't a have copy. Those, like files permanently. They're so just, it's they it's, live in the app. Okay, so, so it's if not you like lose your subscription. You don't get people. Okay, so it's not. So to clarify for other listeners, it's not something like iTunes, where if you purchase no. it in iTunes, you can physically download it to your desktop and physically make a CD out of it. Correct. But now iTunes also has that iTunes Music subscription, which I That's think is more Spotify, where you don't get to keep it. Yep. I feel like it's it's going to the point. I, I I remember some some guy put it where it's like people are more interested in the bottles than the wine. <laughs> now I feel like we're more interested in the the wine cellar than the wine bottle. 
like than the wine. Sort yeah, of like we're more interested in like having the keys to the wine cellar. It's oh, like, okay, yeah. cool. I like I might not drink all of the wine here. Or I, I might like not even like have access to yeah. it. I'm not gonna own any of these wine bottles or like maybe even drink any of them. But hey. Like, I have the keys to the cellar. That's pretty cool. So here's the problem. And actually, I'll, I'll ask Jordan this question because you might know more about this than I do. No. Like, I feel like musicians, content creators, are faced with a similar crisis to um, authors, journalists particularly, and, like, those who work in the, in the print industry and all that. So, like, why are legacy newspapers dying? Or have a lot of them have died or gone out of business because like for a number of reasons but a lot of it was because a lot of people just got used to getting a lot of news for free through the internet right like so and I've seen like you know there's some newspapers that are trying different things like do we put up a paywall but then you know people are like hey, I'm gonna react against that so then you've got like the New York Times which is like well we'll let you read 10 free articles a month but then we'll block your IP address or whatever it is so like do you feel like those who deal with the written or printed word have like found a solution to that? Like in, to like to get paid fairly, but to still make content wi widely available. Like how do we, how do we, how do we do that? That's that's a great question. I think what a lot of it comes down to is, I think negotiation. So I think that as printed media, right, sort of eventually migrates to uh, more digital, you know, mediums. I think that it's, uh, maybe I'm being too much of an offer, you know, sort of uh, an optimist about this, but I think it sort of helps, I think that from like the consumers, all, I was going to say all the stakeholders, but everyone involved, right? So you have the consumer, you have, you know, the ultimate like company or the organization, and then you have the content writer. And I think that it kind of allows a little bit more of like a, I think of just like a dynamic interaction, right? Like think, think of like Patreon, right? Yeah, that's a good so point. I think that with the technology, that it provides so many different pathways to make it really disruptive and actually finally give, I think, a little bit of power back to you know the the content creators. And also reduce the power of some of the big gatekeepers, publishers, you know, book publishers, also music publishers, um, record companies. I mean, I think when those things were functioning, not that they ever have entirely, but in the times that they function like they were supposed to, they support content creators, they take some of the business um, burden off of them. But it seems like, you know, like so many other businesses, they often just turn into another part of the problem in terms of like keeping profits for themselves, stifling sharing and creativity and you know just kind of yeah I think that's part of why the copyright law is so convoluted actually is because a lot of it was created not to protect the rights of individual creative people but to protect the, the interests of large moneyed interests so then I have well, the organizations who facilitate the you know the artists to like put out those services right exactly which are less necessary now maybe yeah, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll put it to you guys because I think, you know, for, for me, I'm like, yeah, technology, disruption, awesome. Yeah, me too. But, but what do you guys think it means for you guys? Because what I'm always curious about is it seems like there are sort of like the haves and the have-nots in the music industry, and it seems like there's a lot of uh, a lot of the, the wealth sort of aggregates to like certain people and certain record labels, and it doesn't seem very distributed. Uh, yeah. So... I guess my question is for like the, and then this is like me again, like 
stressing and emphasizing that I'm not a music person. How the hell do you guys make a living for yourselves? Sure. Well, Being musicians. I feel honestly. <laughs> Just, just asking the the floor here. Well, we should go yeah. For this one. Or we can just go around. We can go. I hope everywhere. I didn't like, strike a nerve here, but just like. Chris no. Anderson has this great uh, term in a, in a book around it called the long tail. So who's Chris Anderson? Chris Anderson. He is. Uh, he was at Wired for a while. I think he runs TED at the moment, like the TED Talk thing. So what you have is you have the people on the top. So like for music, for example, it's like, okay, you have Rihanna, you got Adele, and they're the ones making all of the money on the top. So if you made it into a line graph, right? It's like you have, yeah. you have them at the top on the left-hand side, top left-hand side. And then it, as you go down that distribution, it just keeps going down, 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 down. And then it doesn't reach zero. It just goes across like a diagonal, like forever. And then like there's a whole huge number of people who are making very little. Exactly, but <laughs> like a flat line. So how do you? But make I that mean, but if, if but if like if, if the people that are top are making a billion, then maybe like the people that are on that long tail are maybe making like a hundred thousand or whatever, or just maybe enough to. Hundred thousand sounds good to me. Same. Well, that's what I mean. Like maybe even yeah, still, I would, like I would it's enough to like. like tour and like have a little to continue and of course maybe that maybe it keeps going down but I think the whole point of that long tail discussion is that even though we have these people on the top that are making it you also have these people that are on the far end that aren't for everyone it's just for other for it's like you know metal polka music that like only like uh, 50 uh, or maybe like 5,000 people like but that's enough to keep the band going. It can be. But right? This gets Where it's into like the same problem yeah. as the print media. It's like if you used to have 50,000 subscribers in, like, say, a small city or medium-sized city, and they were paying, you know, I don't know, $3 a week to get local delivery of your newspaper, and now you have 10,000 subscribers who are paying $1 a month to get the digital edition of your newspaper, the fact that your costs have gone down by not having to print so many newspapers does not offset the loss of income. Plus... And this gets into economics, I think. Inflation, cost of living. So, like, one of the great truths that I keep hearing about in the American economy is, like, wages have not kept up with uh, prices. Right? So, like, my parents bought a house in, what, the house we, they live in now, like, 1983 or something like that. Like, to buy that house today would cost... So this is one of the reasons why, like... Millennials, like this whole stereotype about, like, oh, millennials just want to have everything. It's like, yeah, but that's because everything, like, costs so much now. Like, that's why it's difficult for us to do things. Like, well, I guess that's a question. Do you think music price will ever catch up to making a living? You know what I mean? Like, the I whole, like, like there 99 was a time cents. When you could make more money as a musician doing some things that now you make almost nothing doing. Because it's all free. Exactly. Kind of like the newspaper thing. Hmm. I was thinking about this today even of how there's before before even just having like the LP or whatever you call it, like the what was it called before that like the stenograph or like whatever the the old turntable kind oh, of record. Yeah, like an LP. Yeah, before record, that I mean you had record, to yeah. actually 
play the music. You're, you had to buy the sheet music and then play it or yeah, watch or hear yeah. somebody actually play the right. piece. You're like, I want to hear Beethoven. It's like, well, sorry, you got to wait for Beethoven to come on over and to play that. Yeah, or buy like the penny like sheet Spoilers, music. Spoilers: Beethoven like, is dead. I'm he talking about nine. I'm talking about 19th century people, but yeah, there was a lot. But you're right. It was a big. There was a big business in sales of like you know, books that had like you know, piano arrangements for the home of like you know the really exciting part of this Beethoven symphony and this yeah. other random very or or you would be a actual pa- or like speaking of Beethoven or Haydn or. Bach or whoever, you would actually have a, and I'm speaking of Patreon, you would actually have a patron, a literal one, you know, big family or this or that, that would be actually be, oh, yeah. and maybe so, it's circling back to that. I always like heard. Patreon, you know, it's like another version of, not peer to peer, but it's like another, it's another type of direct patronage. Yeah, so instead of like the Estrahazis, you have like. You know, like a, a bunch of nerds from like Portland, Oregon. Which yeah, I don't have a thousand. It was like crowdsourced, right? Like yeah. kind of being a crowdsourced yeah. like. Yeah, so it's not. Yeah, you're not using royalty or anything. You're just using yeah a lot of individuals. So did like let's go back to the written word for a moment. Did um, uh, did so you were a classics major, Jordan? How did these guys make any money? Did they have rich patrons? Were they patronized by the church, the government? Patrons, right. Um, like the the first person that came to mind was Horace, right? So like Mycenaeus, who was like the right hand man of Augustus, the emperor, bankrolled him, right? So for me, I kind of, okay. so for me, I really have this idea entrenched in my mind of great artists have to have some sort of always paired backing. with some kind of big. Financial the Middle Ages, yeah, the church entity, right? and the and the nobility, and were they were the biggest, rolling in the dough. Yeah, they were they were the biggest game in town. They that's got why, That's where the art came. <laughs> they got them ducats. But then, what's interesting about that is when you look at somebody like Mozart to circle back to that era. So, like Mozart is such a weird musician in the sense that yes he did have royalty and nobility paying for him to play. He played in the courts. He was a court musician right, like his he, father. Like like However, yes, he went on, well, actually, he went on tour with his sister, Nannerl Mozart. Most people don't know her story. She was just as good as Mozart, but because she was a woman, she couldn't make it as a professional. Same with Mendelssohn and his sister, Fanny. Yeah. Um, but somebody like Mozart, well, yes, the courts and the kings and the queens and the Dutch and the duchesses paid for him. Most people hated his music at that time period. Why? Because he would take something, there are actual accounts where he took a Haydn piece and he was practicing it as like a 13-year-old boy and his dad was like, what are you playing? And he's like, oh, it's Haydn, but I made it better. And he's like, you can't perform that. It's Haydn. There's nothing better than Haydn. He's like, no, but I made it better. You know, like that kind of attitude. And so while Mozart did, did, did tour a lot and while nobility did pay for him, to the average person, the average listener, you might not have liked his music because it wasn't what you were used to. He'd take classical canon ideas and change them just ever so slightly. And at that time, I mean, like even think of today, any small change to the social norm is a big deal, right? No matter how small it is, it's a big deal. So yeah, that's like, um, I think it's like this idea of the creative curve, right? You just have, you take what you already know and you fine tune it just enough so people don't freak out because people do not like what's unfamiliar. Like, um, I think a really good example is like a sushi burrito. We love sushi and we love burritos. And 
combine it, it's like, this is novel. This is amazing. What a time to be alive. Man. Sushi burritos. <laughs> Thank you, California. Like pineapple on pizza. Thank you, bougie people. But I wonder if now, perhaps more than ever, we, we are able to ha- have an audience for sushi burritos or for those things that are on the long tail or for like people like Mo- you know, Mozart at his day, like, you know, messing with a Haydn sonata that we can have more people connected together to almost form safety nets for these weird fringe artists or fringe creators it's which one it seems possibility, like we can yeah. but it, it also so. sometimes unfortunately means this is something we used to talk about at composition seminar in college like it's since people can cater their listening their consumption of music and of all sorts of media so much to their tastes it's like like you never get any exposure to things. Yeah, like Other you have things. the potential to get exposed to a lot, but then you also have the potential to say, I only want to listen to the first 30 seconds of these 10 songs I like. Yeah. Is there a problem with that? Ah, so this is this is an interesting question. This is why, one of the reasons I think like what Brianna does as an, as an educator of the young is important. Yes. Like, it's just like the reason I think it's important for kids to do more than read the first 10 pages of the 10 books they like. Like, I think they should have to read the whole thing of 1984 even if they're not in the mood for it I think they should have to read I think I actually I think they should have to read something from the classics as well you know like I think like when I had to read Homer I didn't particularly enjoy it in high school but I think that that made me a better richer more educated person and I think it also taught me as reading a lot of other things that I might not have chosen to read and playing a lot of music that I might not have chosen to play or listening to a lot of music that I might not have chosen if it's I think it I think it teaches you something valuable and it broadens your experience in a way and then as you grow older if you've been exposed to those kind of you know a variety of I hate to say great artifacts of culture because then it sounds like I'm freezing them in a museum just a little highbrow I know I know I hate to say that but like if we've decided that there are some pieces of culture that are worth being exposed to in the arts you know in arts and letters and literature and everything I think it's valuable to make that part of education because then like hopefully by doing more than listening to the first 10 sec 30 seconds of those 10 songs I like that'll I don't know I mean I hate to justify this by like you know a crude like social construct like violence but I think that one of the reasons why we can't listen to each other now is because we haven't learned to listen to things we don't like lately say that again I think we one of the reasons listen. why in our society now we have trouble listening to each other is because it's very easy to tune out things that you don't like, to call them stupid on the internet, and then to not engage with them critically in your mind. Is that an elitist thing to say? I don't know. No, I don't think so. Because then, I mean, it's not just music that we can do that with, though. Right. I mean, it's, it's music, right? it's literature, I mean, it's clothing, how you dress, what kind of car you're interested in. I mean... For example, when Dave got a new car, he wanted a car that looked just like his old one. And he, well, it didn't have to look like his old one, but it does it look like his old look one. A lot like my so, so, well, so, but, 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 so, but, but think about it. You trusted the company. You liked the product that you had in the past. So you're going to stick with it, right? True. So why spend your time doing a bunch of research when you already know something's going to work for you? So, Good point. So then that goes to anything. Should you have brought in your mind and looked at Subarus and looked at Chevys? Or I did. I did. I did just came you? back to the same Oh, that's because you're an elitist, again. an elite I'm thinker. I'm totally an elitist. 
It's also because, but, like, I'm always, like, I have FOMO majorly. I'm like, wait, but what if there's a better option? Yeah, so, but that's in anything that we do. So I guess back to that, is that why it's so hard to listen to people? Maybe. Because it's so easy to just do what you like and nothing else. Like, if I like chocolate ice cream, I can easily go to Walmart and only buy chocolate ice cream. And that's it. But then I'll never experience the Rocky Road or the Sherbert. So, Jordan, you've, you've, read a, you, you've read works. Um, and did you read any of them in their original languages, like the classics? Uh, painfully, yes, and in small, small doses. Okay, so like you've done some things that I have not done. Like I've never read the Bible in Greek. I've never read like you know Homer in. Wait, what did he speak Greek? Yeah, okay. Um, like or. Should I? Should you? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> do you want, like, a polished opinion or, like, uh, unvarnished opinion? It's a podcast. I think unvarnished. I just want to know what you actually think. Like, do you think it makes... Does it make people better to have to do that? I would say, generally speaking, painful experiences, like uh, pulling teeth and translations, uh, you know makes you a better person but I think it's like you guys right like learning like to CJ like you know learning a really difficult piece it's ugh. there's some days you just want to just like throw everything out the window and be like you know what I'm done with this I'm I'm fed up with it but I think that it's just from a, a character standpoint right like working at something and even when you're frustrated and you want to give up and you just totally disagree with it and you want to reject it uh, just the fact that you have to it's mentally pushing past things right so the fact that you had to wrestle with those experiences and then also read a number of works and genres that I have not read much, do you think those make you a better person and or a better citizen of this country and like this world? Oh, now we get, ooh, we get real deep. Okay. Uh, I would say, yeah, like it makes you like very, I would say sympathetic, right? Uh, because, you know, there, there are things that you, you walk around and you think that you're super confident in. And you're like, I've been going through the same damn sentence for, like, 35 minutes. Like, for real? Is this a thing? Yeah, you're like, the, okay, this is a thing. So I think I think it's humbling in a way, right? So doing these difficult things has taught you a kind of humility that you think makes you a better person. Well, it realizes that you're an idiot. Like, me, me realize I'm an idiot. <laughs> like, really. Like, I'm just like, how do I, like, get up and, like get through the day you know what I mean like it's a miracle you know I'm like wow like I did it this is like the time in college when I really bombed my jury and got like a, either a C or a D in piano I don't remember what C's it was C's get degrees oh man D is for diploma and like but like everyone's surprised about that they're like you're such a good pianist it's like yeah but I didn't put in the work but like the, even just the experience of like trying and failing to master this Bach English suite that I was trying to master for my jury and not leaving myself enough time to do it, but struggling through that made me a better pianist, a better person, a better student, because I understood a number of things. I understood that this thing that was worth doing, that I acknowledged was a great piece of music and worth learning, I could not cram in the last minute when I'd usually been able to get away with that previous to that in my young life. And I also learned like a larger lesson about life in that. And about like, you know, even when you have a teacher that maybe you're not getting along with that doesn't exempt you from doing difficult things. And yeah, I think it made me a better person. And I think too, uh, I, I, I love me some Dr. Jordan Peterson. So uh, not to, you know, pontificate too much on it, but I think that there's something to be said, right, of trying to strive for that ideal. And it scares you. 
because what happens if you fall short of that ideal? What happens if you fall short of that mark, right? So that's why it's really easy to set low bars for yourself because you know you can meet them. You know, like with my Fitbit, it's like, all right, if I take like 10 steps, I know I can get 10 steps from like my couch to my fridge. But when you're like, okay, I'm going to run a 5K, you're like, I don't, I don't know if I could do that, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about, you know, being a musician, you know, translating texts, the podcast with my ramblings. No, no, I like. Actually, bringing it back to. Were we I like, actually? I like your. I like your perspective on no, this. No, I think this is fantastic. But does this also apply to just listening to music as well? Is there is there the same Herculean feat of of saying I have to listen to this song? Because I think that's what we were talking about: is appreciation of like, yeah. should we be forced to listen yeah. to music or to read a text? I think there can be. Like, so I mean for me as someone who's very very guilty of this uh, just like skipping through my entire playlist or even worse just going to YouTube because you know for me with my you know falling on a budget Spotify you know subscription okay great I thought you know I just want to listen to this one track that I'm in the mood to listen to and I'm gonna cut through all of the nonsense I don't even want to listen to the entire album that you know, might be pretty good. I just want this one single that I know and that I like, and that's it. But it's funny because just this conversation, I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I should listen through like that entire album. They put a lot of work into that. Maybe, maybe there's actually ooh, a story arc. Oh, maybe I would, I would argue that there's a place for people. both of those things, and just, but just the fact that you're willing to consider that, like, kind of speaks to your character. I'm gonna sound like such an elitist again. Into your education. <laughs> yeah, tell me, tell me more good things about myself. I no, 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 seriously, like, so the fact that you realize that there can be a value in taking in an entire creative work, and that there was a lot of effort that went into that, is is, is like that. I feel like that doesn't happen by accident. I think that because of people like Brandon who teach kids and teach them to actually do that. That's how we develop that. It doesn't happen by accident. And I've met people. It scares me sometimes. So I feel like I've never been taught that. And um, I think, like, how do you, so how do you wrestle with things that are difficult? Then, like for me, there are times. So I would argue there are places for both of what you're talking about. There are times where I'm just listening to music to comfort myself, or to entertain myself, or to distract myself, or whatever. But then there are other times when I'm listening to music to understand something about what the musician is thinking, or understand something about a culture that I've never understood before, or to learn something, or to explore something deeper within myself. And I think that for a person that grows up thinking that music, or movies, or literature, or television, or whatever, are purely for, and I'm going to put this in air quotes here, entertainment is missing that. Or like, to put it in the terms of the consumer culture, if we think that like the, um, the, the the writing that somebody does in prose or the poetry that somebody writes or the music that they write or the, like, I don't know, the lesson plans that they write or like the technical draft writing that they write. You is, should see my spreadsheets. I know your spreadsheets are works of art. Like our... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. You know, pivot tables and can teach me, like, help me out. Let's talk offline. Yeah. I am Google Level 1 certified, uh, and you need to know a pivot table to get that. I don't know what that is. You should do it. It's 10 bucks. So, like, if we, so, like, with the Spotify thing, like, if we reduce something only to its consumer, what people are willing to pay for it 
value or its entertainment value. Like, I'm talking about perceived value, right? Yeah. So how do you? Yeah. So what is what does entertainment mean too? So I think I, I'm using entertainment as a derogatory, just like for okay. so like for people that like so if you ask like the average like man on the street, and we could use this with lots of different. Uh, disciplines. It doesn't have to be music. It could be uh, movies too. It's like, what is the purpose of music? Yeah. Oh, it's like for entertainment, right? Or like, should music be pretty? Should music be beautiful? Should music? Should art be beautiful? Let's take visual art. Should right. art be beautiful? It's like, yeah, that's why I bought a lot of Thomas Kincaid paintings. Somebody might say, it's like, yeah, okay, but what about like, uh, what about like Edvard Munch? Or like, what about like? the art of Holocaust survivors or like the art of Guayasamid in Ecuador I saw last year. He's this artist that depicts like this, the, the pathos and the suffering and like the ripping away of markers of identity of like the native peoples that live in that part of the world. Like that art was not necessarily always quote unquote beautiful in right. like a or traditional sense. about like Duchamp, right? Yeah. Like, you're like, it's a urinal. What? What? <laughs> so then I think the question would be, should we still be exposed to this? I and, would argue yes. And I would also argue yes. And as an educator, you see it all. And um, one of the things that I try to ask my students and I make them is to always ask the question, why? That's awesome. Because... They come in and they tell me that their favorite song is God's Plan by Drake. And I say, that's great. Why? Why do you like it? What makes you like it? And they're like, is I don't the know. One, how old are you? Well, I mean, they, you see it all when you teach. Um, so I, I, I say to them, okay, so you like God's Plan by Drake. Why do you like it? And they have a very difficult time articulating that. And I say, do you like the words? Do you like how he says the words? Do you like the drum beat in the background? Do you like the fact that he's not singing like an opera player singer? Do you like the fact that it's talking about an issue in our world or that it's not talking about an issue in our world? What do you like about it? And it, you'd think that something like that would be so easy, but it's not. And it applies to everything that you do. And so, like, the whole time that Dave just went on his spiel there, I was thinking, doesn't this apply to how we talk and listen to people, too? Yeah. Because why did I just sit here and listen to Dave talk? What was the value in doing that? I could have interrupted him Probably five times, very little. right? Well, but, but really, though, so it comes down to I have a respect for what he's saying, and I have a respect for what you're saying, and I want to learn from it. Well, what do I want to learn? Well, I want to learn a perspective from somebody who's read classic literature because I read what I had to in high school and that was it. Same. I want to learn a perspective from somebody who went from being a musician to working in IT because I don't have that perspective. I want to know what that's like. And for, again, if you're comparing this, it's everything, right? You can just listen to Christian rock on the Spotify playlist or you can listen to everything. You can just listen to those songs, and I think, yeah, it does have their time and place where you just want to listen to that one song, or you just want to read Plato's Cave. There, it, it, it <laughs> oh, has man, just, its time like, and its need place. need to chill out with, like, the cave. <laughs> and that's okay. But I also think that if we turn our likes in being comfortable 
and to the only thing that matters, we lose a lot. Hashtag cable news. But really, I mean, one of the greatest things about growing is being uncomfortable. And I am uncomfortable every freaking day of my life. Like teaching kids, when your kids know more than you do, it's uncomfortable. Like when your kids know more about modern music than you do, it's very, very uncomfortable. But But then you you need to embrace that. You 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 need to embrace that. And the greatest thing is when your kid comes back to you and they say, I know more than you, and they can demonstrate it, and they can tell me why they know more than me. Because that tells me that I've done my job. If my kids are better than me, if my clarinet students come out being a better clarinet player than I am, then I've done my job. So That's awesome that you I, have that perspective. And I think that it's so special. And so to not respect. be afraid of that. Because, I mean, if you're teaching somebody about literature, you want them to get interested in it, right? Because that's what you love. Hell yeah. That's what you love. You want somebody to be interested. And they might not be. And that's okay. But you want to share your love for it with somebody. And I think at the end of the day, that's what's important. That we give people a chance to talk. We give them a chance to listen, and we share what we love. Because, I mean, we're all going to turn to ashes one day anyway, right? Yeah. So you might as well make the most of it now. So, yeah. I. <laughs> well, this just turned into the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, so... All, it, <laughs> all pursuit is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think should you, back to your original question, should you be forced to listen to, maybe not forced, but I think you should want to have that drive, to listen to or read something or listen to somebody talk that you wouldn't normally because you it makes you comfortable. Well, what's the difference then between trying something exotic and just like tasting hot sauce and just burning your tongue? You know what I mean? Like I, I would feel like there has to be some balance or something between like, I'm just listening to a cricket's chirp like with heavy distortion and feedback, <laughs> but it's different, and I'm trying to explore these options. It's a happening. It's a happening. You know, we're just where where I guess it gets to the point where you're like, where you have to ask again, why? Uh, why are you uh, listening to this, or why is this a thing? And then if yeah. you don't get something that's perhaps meaningful or worthwhile, it's just okay. So why should I listen to this? Is it useful for people to sit outside? and stare at the sky like is that a useful thing to look up at the clouds I think so empty your mind I was going to make a Spongebob reference but please Dave's too old for Spongebob hey (laughs) our demographic might be of that age it's like that one episode where Spongebob's trying to become a waiter and he's like empty your mind think of nothing but fine dining and breathing that's kind of like like that's like the sky you know just like nothing but (laughs) nothing but the sky and breathing but then on the flip side I also know people who hate laying in grass and who hate staring at clouds so then does it become is it okay to try the hot sauce and not like the experience well you can't force anybody to like anything yeah I mean, also, like, I just want to point out uh, the Jackass franchise exists for a reason, so people <laughs> do stupid stuff, like myself included. So what if some people like to, like, drink sriracha, I'm sure. I'm not encouraging that, folks. But to CJ's point, maybe there are some people that just like the hot sauce. Yeah. Right, but then you just do it. Like, I, I, I suppose my question is, is it right to just find virtue in 
doing painful experiences that uh, you just know you're just like, oh yeah, I'm gonna go um, watch this, you know, really like borderline pornographic film, but it's <laughs> art. But you know, I know it's really well, awful so, uh, and de- degrading. But I'm gonna watch it anyway. I, I have to make another shout out for that Radio Lab episode I was talking yeah. about before we started taping. Um, post new evil about like facebook and censorship because it's it gets to a lot of these issues i would posit that there is pain that is for a purpose and that there is pain that's just gratuitous so like you can do something uncomfortable for a good reason and you can do something uncomfortable for a destructive reason okay (laughs) no no no. now that being said i don't think that you have to though because, yeah, I, and I could be wrong, I think that what CJ was saying, do I have to taste the hot sauce uh, because I should be making myself uncomfortable? And I think the answer is no. I think that each person is different and you need to make that differentiation for yourself. And some people may never take a step outside of their comfort zone. Is that okay? I think yes, too. Yeah, but like, I, like to play devil's ed? Like, I mean, it really does come down to individual choice, right? Right. I get, You're only really hurting yourself if you choose to not push those limits. But you could also be hurting society if you don't learn to listen to viewpoints that are different than your own. Now, does that matter? I think it does. Still, right? Because, like, you're still, uh, as a person who lives in society, unless if you literally, like, live under a rock, you're, like, Grizzly Adams. That was a really old reference. Uh, Bear Grylls. I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a survivalist person. Thoreau. Thoreau. Well, who actually was not completely isolated. Or, like, Grizzly Adams. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Anyway. John the Baptist. Exactly. But, like, the thing is, as an individual, you still have to own that outcome, too, right? Because, like, that's how, I don't know, like, society can be shot to hell. It's, like, individuals making poor choices on a mass scale. I think individuals should have the right to refuse to take in something that makes them uncomfortable, but I think that... um, we should I, th- I think that society has a responsibility to teach children to inca- like so you as a teacher if a kid said well I don't want to sing this song because I think it's stupid like you wouldn't be, you wouldn't say like oh that's okay you know like my I, words are you don't have to like it but you have to try right exactly <laughs> so like even like maybe as adults like we have that agency in order to teach kids to I don't, know. I don't want to like say that we don't like phoning in saying well Johnny doesn't want to do this so you better change this or else I'm going to email the principal and we're going to make this a whole thing yes and often they email the principal before they even consult with you oh going over your head without talking to you that's terrible yes. And then the principal comes to you and they say hey what's this about and you say I don't know because the parent never contacted me yeah that's rotten. So, um, can you repeat your question then with that? So, I guess my question, so Dave was mentioning sort of trying to nudge kids, right? And, like, nudge, you know, students into sort of, you know, taking, uh, accepting or, you know, entertaining, you know, working on songs that they don't like. So, my question was, you know, kind of with, like, the sort of the helicopter parent syndrome thing of, you know, parents, what the best intentions are want to shield their kids from stuff? Of as a teacher nowadays, how do you teach well in the sense that right 
you kind of like nudge, you nudge your kids, right? To, and by your kids, your students, to do things they don't like, but if the parents catch wind of it, you know, it's like, how, do you, how do you balance that respecting the parents' wishes but from a pedagogical and a teaching standpoint, do what's best for the student. I think and Jordan has hit on a central tension in education right now. And that's a... Boom! I didn't mean to, but... That's a yeah, that's a hammer. very, very difficult question to answer because there are multiple answers to that question, none of which may or may not be the right answer. Well, how do um, you deal with that? So, in my classroom... I'm sorry? Is it case by case? Yes. Um, in my classroom, the most... The most common email I get is about anything that may be relating to a religious topic or maybe um, relating to a more difficult topic. So for example, um, the National Association for Music Education puts out a great little blurb about sacred music in the classroom because music started in the church. I mean, that's where it really became popular. So um, when you get those emails from a parent about things like that, you always, 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 always make an exception if it's a religious thing, always. And that might be that if we're doing, um, I don't know, I don't even see, and we've already changed how we teach so much anymore. We don't call them Christmas concerts, they're winter concerts. It, and you so don't call it a you don't call it a holiday concert because not everybody celebrates a holiday. Some people don't celebrate anything, so it is a winter concert. So um, the best way with religious things is to just not do it. Now I did have a situation last year where um, I do listening activities with my kids, and a kid had said to me, "That sounds like." the angels in heaven and God came down and God saved us and he sent his son so do you think that this song is the angels singing and so that gets into a very difficult thing then because how do you answer that question keep the parents happy who aren't religious keep the kids happy and still be faithful to yourself so um, the answer is it's hard um, so something like that, you might answer, well, if that's what you think and if that's what you believe, then that's what it could be. If, but if you don't think that, it's okay. So it's case by case. So religious exemptions, I guess, are the easiest ones to answer. Um, as far as parents just emailing you and saying, I don't like the way you're teaching this or you're teaching my song or my child a song that is actually about the bubonic plague like ring around right. the rosy. Um, is that okay? So how you deal with those parents is you give them the educational reasons about why you're doing what you're doing. And so that's because it covers this standard of our Virginia State learners. And if we want them to continue to be lifelong, well-rounded individuals, like we know that your Johnny, Johnny and Susie are, this is what we feel is best. And then you give them those reasons, but then you also give them a chance for them to say, and you say, how can I better help your child? Because when you say that to the parent, sometimes the parent goes, oh, you're doing everything that you can, and then their argument is totally moot point. But then if you say, how can I help your child? Or how can I, if you, they like, how can I be a better teacher for your child? And they will tell you. And then you might find out something that you don't know, like maybe we don't talk about this political thing at home because we're an immigrant family, and that brings back horrible memories for my child 
oh, okay, well, now you're aware of it, and now you can make a change as a teacher. But if you don't know that, it gets a little bit more difficult. So it, that was a very long and drawn out answer, and you probably didn't get the answer you wanted, but it's very, very complicated, and it's kid by kid. I, I, I can't imagine it, and as a non-teacher and a non-musician, I can't stress that enough, how ignorant I am of all of this. I give you guys so much credit because it sounds like you guys, it's just like a high wire act every day. It's like herding cattle. Like the first week of school, kindergartners, it's like herding little baby kittens. But it's fun. The parents (laughs) might be a whole other rodeo. Oh, yeah, they are. And I mean, honestly, a lot of things, if we get into that, the kids will respond if you go out of your way to find out how they respond. Maybe Johnny doesn't like writing, but maybe he doesn't like writing because he had a teacher in first grade tell him he was a terrible speller. You don't know that. Maybe he doesn't like writing because when he goes home, mom and dad argue about writing a check, and he associates that word writing with mom and dad arguing. You don't know. There's so much that you don't know about your kids, and so it's, it's tough. But then I have that same question for Dave then, because Dave is a college teacher, And Dave, I would assume, doesn't deal with many parents. So then her question to me was, how do you deal with parents when you're trying to expose your children to things that they may not like? So then you don't deal with parents. So so then how would you answer that question as an educator who teaches collegiate students? How do I deal with things that my collegiate students do not like? How do you, I I think her question was, when you're trying to broaden, like basically broaden the horizons of your students, how do you deal with students and I guess that would push back against you? Uh, well, this is a continuing puzzle. Um, I try a lot of different things. The thing that I try the most, the two things that I try the most are number one, because so I, I usually, when I'm teaching, I'm usually teaching a music theory class of some sort, and usually it's an ear training class. Um, I usually try to relate it back to a larger purpose, something that goes beyond just the numbers and the notes and the analysis and like the nitty gritty, but like how this relates to a bigger picture of being a musician and even of being a good citizen. And then I also um, try to keep as much as possible what I do grounded in practical application and talk about the fact that I'm a working musician, composer, person, and that I use these skills daily. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that, you know, and I think my students get that. And I think that that's one of the reasons I've been able to connect with them. Sometimes students who haven't connected much with other people, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, I'm just like, this is one of my unfair advantages of not being like a full-time college professor is like I I I think I get um, I don't know I think students respect the fact I think students respect the idea of somebody doing the thing and then on the side teaching how to do that thing I know that I had a lot I struggled a lot when I was in college with certain professors who seemed to be so far removed from actually doing the thing that they were just kind of stuck up in the theoretical world of doing the thing as opposed to the practical reality. Yeah, exactly, like no practical application. Yeah, and and, and, and it's hard because I also believe very much in the, like, I guess the, that liberal arts ideal of, like, the fact that learning is intrinsically valuable, that, like, not everything has to have practical application all the time to have value. 
I'm sure you get this in the classics too. Like sometimes, I'm sure you get people talk about that kind of thing. Like, well, this is useless. Why should we do this? Yeah, yeah, all all the time. Uh, it's like, oh, let me tell you about stratigraphy, and let me tell you about like marble. And people are like, yeah, okay, how is this relevant? Right. Great question. Let me let me go consult my tea leaves, and I'll be right back with you. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, uh, I'll give an example that I think ties the two of those together. And uh, there's other things that I try, too. And sometimes I come down on the idea of, like, you know what? I'm required to teach you how to do this thing, and you're going to learn it to get your degree. So, sorry. The example that I use a lot, and I, t- I tend to do this now on day one of the course or very close to day one of the course, is, is a variation upon the following idea. This is one I'm going to kind of generalize here. So, let's say that I, I put my students in kind of a for instance in their very near future like you're going to graduate from this institution and you're going to have a bachelor's degree in music and it's going to be a bachelor's degree in whatever education or performance or music music production recording technology music therapy composition etc somebody's going to ask you as somebody with a bachelor's degree in music to do something that if that involves evaluating other people probably so it could be because you're a teacher but it could also just be because you got tapped to conduct the whatever community band thing that's happening, and they were the, you were the only person that somebody knew that actually knew anything about music. So, like, let's put a for instance, let's say that you're sitting on an audition panel and you're going to choose between a group of young students who are auditioning for a position in something. Maybe they're auditioning to be in the uh, community production that you're doing at Fiddler on the Roof or something like that. Or maybe they're going to audition for the pit orchestra of that community production. So when those students walk in the door and you, 24, 25-year-old degree-carrying musician, are sitting at a table evaluating them, and maybe that's not even something you're used to doing, being like sitting across a table evaluating somebody, you're going to ask them to play their excerpt or sing their song or whatever. But here's the thing. When they walk in the door, you're already formulating ideas about them, right? We all do it. Like, this is... And this is not even necessarily a bad thing, you know, like... You know, it goes back to the maybe our you know primitive human origins. Like you know that you're recognizing members of your tribe. You're looking for uh, you know things that you may or may not like about somebody or telltale signs. And this is one of the reasons why good teachers emphasize a lot, like you know, making a good first impression when you walk into a room, whether it's in a job interview or in a situation that relates directly to what you do, like an audition or whatever. So like. You know, the person walks in the room, what kind of, well, I'll ask you guys, like, what kind of assumptions are you making about them, and what are you basing those assumptions on? If you walk into an audition with ripped jeans, I will judge you. Right, me too. Because to me, that's not professional. What about you, CJ? I don't know if you're wearing clothes, I think you're a civilized human being, and it's pretty awesome, and as long as you don't, I don't know, spit at me, I think you're okay. I I don't know. (laughs) like almost like a checklist of things right where if we're honest yeah like if we're being real here like well i'm being real i don't know you guys seem pretty genuine cj i don't know about you like suspicious character but but just even small things like a handshake right like i kind of judge someone based off of their handshake like can i can i interject for a hot second push pause Dave shook my hand today, and I think it was the first time he's ever shaken my hand. And I was like, wow, he has a really firm handshake. And that, I don't know why right? that. It's like a weird yeah. respect thing. Like okay, play. Go thing. ahead. Okay, yeah, but play. 
Yeah. Yes, so, but that's because like, somebody at some point told me that I should have a firm handshake yeah. to make an impression on people. So when there's like the whole cold fish handshake, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, oh, why is it? Why is your hand so limp? Like, ugh, it's weird. You're like, and then, right? But there are always some of these like baked in assumptions that you have about people. Right. And and I'm not even saying that any of those things are bad. But what I'm challenging my students to do is, number one, recognize that they have those assumptions and be aware of them. This, and I usually tell the story about how I became more aware of some of my own assumptions about people based on race, based on gender, and I go into like some personal stories. Um, but getting back to our hypothetical, so you, so you see two kids walk in and they both want to play first violin in the pit orchestra or whatever like that. One of them walks in with ripped jeans um, and they happen to be of a certain gender and of a certain race. The other one walks in with like neatly pressed khakis and they happen to be a different gender and a different race. If we're all honest, we make assumptions based on those things before they say a word, before they play a note. We make assumptions based on their posture. We make assumptions based on other elements of their body language. If they shake your hand, how firmly they do. And none of those things are wrong, but they are true. Now, I would say that if you're auditioning kids for, say, an educational or kind of community opportunity and they're in 10th grade, you should, part of your purpose should be to give them a shot, right? Like even, because they're like, yeah, I'm going to evaluate somebody differently if they're 30 and they're like, you know, in the middle of their first career and like, you know, I expect different things. But if they're 10th graders, I expect a little less on some of those polished things. But I do want to hear the kind of ability they have and the kind of aptitude they have to play their instrument and to do the kind of musicianship they need to do for this, for this job or for this position if it's like a non-paying thing. But here's the thing, all of those assumptions that I make based on their race, skin color, based on the way their hair is looks, based on the ripped jeans, are factoring into my evaluating of them, whether I realize it or not. It's my job as an educated musician to base the way that I evaluate them on more than those things that I assume about them. We've all had teachers at some point or bosses or friends or family members who were like, ah, oh, that person's just playing favorites. They're just, ba- they just like that person because they're pretty. They just like that girl because she's blonde and white. They, you know, whatever, like, they just like that person because they make them laugh, you know, be- whatever. So, like, what if you're not secure in your own musicianship or in the case of what I'm teaching in your ear training skills? What if you hand them an example to sight read and you can't confidently evaluate whether they're playing it correctly or not? What if you can tell that they're playing out of tune, but you don't know how they're playing out of tune, you don't know how far out of tune it is, you can't tell whether it might be their instrument that's part of the problem? What if their instrument is part of the problem and that's because their family is poor and that's also the reason that their genes are ripped, not because they're being disrespectful? All of these things play into how you're evaluating that person. My job in teaching you, my student, is to give you a set of tools, is to help you develop a set of tools rather, not give to you, that's going to let you do more than fall back on your prejudices, on your assumptions, on your first impressions. Not that those things are wrong, but if that's all that you've got, guess what? You're going to be that terrible teacher. You're going to be that terrible evaluator. You're going to be that person that falls back on your prejudices and your personal preferences and your comfort zone because you're not secure in your skills. You're not secure in 
whether you can confidently and accurately and impartially evaluate somebody. So that's the kind of thing that I do to try to convince my students that it's worth it. Dave, I feel like that oddly brings everything full circle. So I feel like yeah. I want. I feel like we should end on that. Okay. Like Five that. One. I, I feel like it does. Jordan, for some any reason. final words? Yeah, who wants to have final words? Jordan? You stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> One of my favorite bands comes from San Diego. Von Burgundy and the, the Burgettes. Oh, man, I've never seen Weatherman. Or is that Weatherman? Anchorman. Or Anchorman, sorry. You have? I thought you had the reference. That's, it's okay. Uh, no, I, need to, I need to go see Anchorman. You're the second person to... Someone else chime in with like a sign-off catchphrase. I'll leave you with a joke. How does Moses make his coffee? Uh, how does Moses make his coffee? He brews it. Oh, man. I was, I, I was in denial about that punchline, just like Moses in denial.